1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands, have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you. And here's the whole purpose of John's letter. This is the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, one of the twelve disciples. Here's the whole reason John is writing this to these individuals and writing this to you and I. And this is very relevant to the subject matter of today and the rest of the Scriptures we're going to read. We declare these things to you that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's number one, that you may have fellowship with fellow Jews, one with another, with the church. You may have fellowship with God. And number four, or verse four, and the second reason, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Everything he's writing is for your benefit, is so that you can have fellowship with this Christ which was manifested in these last days, and so that your joy can be full. This is good news. What he's about to declare is good news, and all of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is good news. It is for your benefit. It is for your advancement. It's for your salvation. It's for your peace. It's for your joy in this life, here and now. Not just in heaven in the future, but so that your joy may be full right now. Continue on, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. First two verses of chapter two. My little children, note the affection in his appeal to them. These things are right to you so that you may not sin. I desire that you do not sin. I write these instructions to you. I tell you these things. I exhort you that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and for ours, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I want to speak to you today on God's faithfulness to forgive. God's faithfulness to forgive. Help us here today, Jesus, to see your beauty, to see what you offer through your cross. Help us to be in fellowship with you, to walk in the light as you are in the light. And God, though we're not perfect, we are perfect because of your blood and we stand before the judgment seat of God. And God, you see the blood of Jesus Christ. You see Christ's righteousness. Help us to understand that, that truth here today. 
Help us to walk hand in hand with you, God. Help us to run away from darkness, to hate the things of this world, to hate sin and to love you. Give us a greater love for you and the things of your kingdom here today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. A few years ago, I was watching or listening to Sirius XM to a particular channel. And it was this channel where there is a doctor, I suppose it's a psychiatrist. This person has been on air for many, many years. And people call in and they have questions and they have advice and this person gives them life advice. And this person, it's a woman, she, she gives very good common sense advice. Kind of the same advice your grandmother would give you, okay? Doesn't coddle people, uh, uh, just kind of shoots it straight, tells people what they ought to hear, and, and, and doesn't really pacify people. And, and a woman called, happened to be listening, and a woman called, and her problem was that she was having trouble forgiving her sister-in-law. She had this unforgiveness in her heart towards her sister-in-law who had done something towards her, had hurt her, had done something to where she was having a problem forgiving the sister-in-law. And in response to this question on how do I forgive, I heard the worst advice I've ever heard. This is a person who's speaking by natural and earthly and human means. But we are dictated by the Spirit of God and guided by the Word of God, which is not earthly and natural. It's, it's heavenly and spiritual. And this doctor said, why do you have to forgive this person to move on? Just forget it and move on. It doesn't matter. Move on. And we all know the reason this woman called is because she knew I need to forgive this person because it's nagging at me. And I have this bitterness and resentment that is, is boiling over in my life. And it's bothering my capacity to live a normal life, to live in freedom. And I have this baggage inside of me. And, and maybe that, that will eventually lead to hatred and resentment and bitterness towards this individual. And this woman, she probably wasn't a Christian. She knew I need to forgive this person because forgiveness is not always about forgiving the person who's across from you. It's about you. Forgiveness is about your future and you being able to walk in freedom in the future. But I don't want to concentrate in applying or drawing a principle from that example. I don't want to concentrate on the necessity that we forgive one another. That is something to draw from that. But I want to concentrate on the, 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 the hard time that this woman had to forgive. She, she was not, it was not easy for her to forgive this person who apparently had hurt her. Have you ever been hurt by someone and the hardest thing in your life was to forgive them? Very hard to do. Very hard to do. We, we, we naturally as humans, we tend to, for, we, we tend to remember all the th things done towards us that are harmful and forget all the things that are done towards us that are good by others. We'll tend to concentrate on those things that hurt us the most instead of what brought us greater healing and benefit. That's just how we are in our flesh. And, and by natural human terms, we are reluctant to forgive naturally. 
In accordance with this world, you have to jump through certain hoops, do certain things, then I'll forgive you, correct? Sometimes people will hang on to unforgiveness, they'll hang on to bitterness and resentment because it's a means of holding power over that other person. This person's asking for forgiveness, I'm not going to give it to you because that puts me in a position of power. And I'm not going to grant you forgiveness. I'm going to hold this over your head for as long as I need to hold power over you. And that's a terrible way to live, isn't it? An absolutely terrible way to live. This lack of forgiveness has ruined businesses, families, relationships, and even churches. But I want you to know here today, God is not like man. God is not like man. In one sense, God has a higher standard of what sin is and what righteousness is and holiness is. And where we will let certain people off the hook, God cannot. But by the same token, God is infinitely more gracious and kind and slow to anger and quick to forgive unlike human beings. Amen? God is quick to forgive. God is faithful to forgive. He's not like human beings. He is exceedingly desirous of granting forgiveness to all of mankind. God has power and he exhibits his power in all of facets of creation. And he longs to be glorified through every single person's life. And I think supremely he is glorified through people's lives when they submit to Him and humble themselves and receive the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Greatest glory comes through your life when He allows you to be forgiven in His sight. God would rather forgive you than cast you into outer darkness is what it comes down to. God is slow to anger. We just read in that, in that song, 10,000 Reasons. Listen to this. You're rich in love. You're slow to anger. Your name is great. Your heart is kind. For all your good, goodness, I will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. You're rich in love. You're slow in anger. That's the God that you serve. That's the God that we serve. And you see this continuously throughout Scripture, don't you? You see this continuously throughout Scripture. How that He is slow to anger and quick to forgive. This message is for some individuals who have a hard time that is one, asking God for forgiveness or believing that God has forgiven you. As a Christian. Because it's understood when we read 1 John that we're not to live in sin because we've been, uh, been delivered from the bondage of sin by grace and the blood of Jesus Christ, but that we're not yet perfected. And that's why in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, he says, My little children, I write these things that you may not sin, but if you do sin. John understands the reality of us living in this world, that we're not perfected yet, but we're being perfected, and that we have shortcomings, and we fall, and that we sin in this life, even as Christians. Even as Christians. Listen, you don't repent only once in your life. You don't, you're not cleansed just once in your life. You don't ask for forgiveness just once in your life. 
There is a daily cleansing. There's a daily repentance. There's a daily forgiveness. Not a daily being saved again, but daily becoming more like Jesus. When you realize, when you get closer to him, you realize how much unlike him that you are. And you see the things in your life that, oh God, I didn't see it, but I see it now. That sin, forgive me, cleanse me. He doesn't condemn you. It's, it's not, you're not being justified again like you did on the day of salvation. You're being continuously sanctified and cleansed. But it comes with the understanding that we live in such a state where we have to stay near and close to Him, understanding that we're either going backwards or forwards, and sin always wants to regain its dominance in our life. And furthermore, there's always something more for God to put His finger on in our lives. Always. There's always some. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 40 or 50 years. There is more cleansing in your life. And it's not a, it's not a discouraging thing. It's not where you come to the Lord and you go, man, I've got, I've, I've got some pride in there that I didn't know I had. I, I have some covetousness in my life. I have some jealousy in my life I didn't realize that I had. And your faith is not shipwrecked, but you realize you got some of those things, tinges of those things in your life, and he puts his finger on it, not to discourage you, not to cast you out. So it's not, it's not you coming to the Lord and becoming discouraged and hopeless. It's you falling on the grace of God continuously, moment by moment, realizing I need continuous cleansing. I need continuous cleansing. I'm saved and I'm being saved. And I will be ultimately, absolutely saved when I stand before him in heaven. And until then, I'm continually cleansed. But we see God's quickness to forgive throughout the scriptures. But if you recall the, the, the story of Jonah, how that God called Jonah to go preach to the pagan people of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And he runs the opposite direction. He gets into a boat. There's a big storm. They throw him overboard. A fish swallows him up. He repents. The fish uh, uh, vomits him out. And he goes to Nineveh to preach the gospel. And, and God is desirous to show mercy and compassion to this pagan nation who's not even a part of the covenant people of Israel. And here is the result in chapter 3. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? The re Here's the reason Jonah fled. We're about, to, we're about to understand Jonah's heart. Here's the reason Jonah fled. Because Jonah understood the nature of God. He was not being obedient to God. He ran the opposite direction. He hated these people. He did not want to preach to them because he knew God's nature. He says this, Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are gracious. And a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die. Then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry?
God's nature is to show loving kindness and compassion. And he will never deny forgiveness to the one who will fall down in humility and say, God, I have sinned. He will never turn away a contrite and broken spirit. God doesn't want the fruit of your lips. He doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants the sacrifice of a contrite and broken heart. David, when he had sinned with Bathsheba and he had had Uriah killed, and in Psalms 51, when he repented, he, he gained repentance, he gained forgiveness, not because he went to the temple and he sacrificed a thousand bulls and a thousand goats and did all these external things. He says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it, but you delight in burnt nor do you delight in burnt offering. The sacrifice of, of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The faithfulness of God to forgive is found in our brokenness, in our contrition. Whether if the person be an absolute sinner who's not in Christ, or you be a Christian, and you realize, God, I need cleansing in this area. God, I repent for the way I spoke to this person. I repent of my thoughts. I repent of the lust of my heart. I repent, oh God. I'm not cast out, but I realize I have, re I have sinned against God and I am broken and I'm contrite and He cannot despise that. He will never despise that. Never despise a contrite and broken heart. Before we look furthermore at 1 John, I'm going to end with 1 John. I just want to share with you Given the fact that we know that God forgives, we know that there's forgiveness for sinners, why is it that some people have a hard time believing these things or applying these things in their life? Do you know there are some people who have grown up in the church their entire life and they still feel condemned? This is why this is important. And there are some people who have been a sinner their whole life, but the Christians they've been around for so long it's made them to feel like they're too far gone to be saved by God. That's just a few reasons. Some people don't come to God. Of course, they love their sin. They love darkness. But I, I want to share with you, before we look at 1 John, and I break down a few things for you. Two barriers to forgiveness. Two barriers in your life where either it will be hard for you to ask God for forgiveness are hard for you to accept that God can forgive you. This is primarily to the Christian, but this applies to the sinner. Okay? But two barriers to unforgiveness. Two barriers to unforgiveness. The first one is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. First, for the unbeliever. Have you ever heard um, the unbelieving world accuse the Christian world of being holy rollers? And holier than thou, and Bible thumpers. You, have, you, have, you, have you ever been accused of that? And, and they, they get all upset because the Christian world thinks they're better than us, and they want to tell us how to live, and they call us self-righteous. You ever been called self-righteous simply because you're just trying to tell the truth of the Word of God, and you're called judgmental? Thou shall not judge. They're going to, here's, here's what's interesting. The sinner will deny everything you're saying from the word of God, but then they're going to quote scripture back to you. Thou shall not judge. You ever heard that? That's convenient. But they'll call you self-righteous. Granted, there are self-righteous Christians. 
But the greatest blockade, the greatest barrier to the unbelieving world to coming to Christ, when they think the Christian world is self-righteous, they are self-righteous. The greatest barrier for any person to approach the throne of grace is that they think they are righteous in themselves. So what is the point in approaching the cross? I don't need God. I'm righteous in my own self. I'm self-righteous. The greatest blockade to every unbeliever to come to Christ is that they do not realize they need a Savior because they do not realize the state of their life. They think they are a good person. (laughs) The gospel means good news. And good news can only exist if bad news also exists. Otherwise, it's just news. The good news is that you're not a good person. The good news is that you're not righteous. The good news is that you're a sheep and you've gone astray. The the bad news is that you, did I say good news? The bad news, the bad news is that you are wicked and you're, you're, you're a hater of God, that you're rebellious, that you've gone astray like all sheep, that you're far from God, that you cannot save yourself. That's the bad news. And nobody likes to hear them understand that they're not a good person. The truth will cause one to either repent or revolt. Listen, the truth, when you are confronted with the truth, you will either repent or revolt. You will either repent or revolt. That's the only two choices when you're faced with the truth concerning yourself and the truth of the word of God. There's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. You will either reject him or receive him. And in light of truth, you will either repent or revolt. I don't know where I heard this, but I have this quote where it says, I liked Christianity until I found out how bad of a person I was. I love Christianity until I found out how bad of a person I was. Because we all like to have high opinions of our self. David Wilkerson says this in his devotion, Why does the world hate the church? The most precious thing to a worldly person is his self-righteousness. Think about it. He has spent his whole life forming a good opinion of himself. He's built an idol to his good works. He praises himself that he's really good at heart and kind to others. He is sure that he's good enough for heaven and too good for hell. This ungodly man has spent years beating down his conscience and searing it. He has taught himself to steal every voice of conviction that comes to him. He enjoys a false peace and has become so deceived that he actually believes God admires him. And now, just when he has shut down the voice of his conscience, you, a Christian, come along and the truth you bring speaks more loudly than his dead conscience. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Suddenly, you're a threat in this man's mind. You're someone who wants to deprive him of his assurance that all is well with his soul. All this time he thought he was okay, but now you're telling him that all his good works are as filthy rags. I tell you, this man doesn't see you as someone who's bringing good news. No, in his eyes, you're a tormentor. Someone who's out to take away his peaceful sleep at night. And the devil, end quote, 
And the devil has his way with mankind because man esteems himself to be innately good. The devil has his way. People cannot be forgiven because they do not see the need to be forgiven. They do not see that they are naked and undone in the presence of God. Man does not see himself as needing redemption. For to admit this would mean he must admit he is bad and sinful. And so many are quick to say that they are not morally perfect, but will not go so far as to say that they are wicked. That is self-righteousness. They do not see themselves as God sees them, but as they want to see themselves. And man will go to the greatest lengths to ensure he doesn't see his own nakedness. He will come up with the greatest excuses for his conduct. He will point to his attempts at many good works to justify his claims of goodness. But the greatest deliverance one can experience is only after God reveals to a person their true state. You know what it means to confess your sin? It means to agree with God. You're either agreeing with God concerning yourself or you're disagreeing with Him. It means to agree with God concerning yourself. When you come to the end of yourself, discarding the charade and realizing you are morally bankrupt, it is then that you are delivered from death. That is to the unbeliever. They cannot receive forgiveness because of their self-righteousness. Righteousness, But you and I, we're also tempted. We're also tempted to fuel our own self-righteousness, even as Christians, aren't we? And when you allow self-righteousness into your life as a Christian, it, it will blind you to some degree as to the inadequacies, the shortcomings, the sin in your life when you begin to have a high opinion of yourself. That's why Paul told the Romans, don't have a high opinion of yourself. Associate with the lowly, with the humble. Don't be self-deceived. We must be careful as Christians. We don't forget how we have been saved. Not by our own works, but by faith through grace. You're sustained, you're saved by grace. We are not on our way to heaven based on our own merit, but solely based upon the merit of Jesus' righteousness. I am now seen as righteous because Jesus is righteous. I'm righteous because Jesus is righteous. I am holy because Jesus is holy. I am worthy because Jesus is worthy. I'm saved because He saved me by His grace. Not by my works, but simply by faith are we saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But don't we boast sometimes? Even to ourselves, if not openly, we boast. We can be so tempted to boast. In the most obvious case, the Christian can start to consider themselves better than others. Better than others. In the midst of spiritual growth and success. How many of you, when you thought you were getting so mature in Christ, you realized later you were so immature at that point? Man, I'm really getting things. I'm really growing. I have a prayer life. I feel so close to the Lord. He's using me. He's speaking things to me. I'm growing more. I'm understanding more. And man, you just think, I'm really a strong Christian. 
And it's good to have an appropriate opinion of yourself, but wow, little, let, let a little spiritual growth and success be cultivated in our lives, and we can easily begin to compare ourselves to others. Man, they don't seem as mature as me. I was more mature at that age than they are. Since when did we ever compare ourselves to other people? We're never commanded to do that. He begins to hold in high regard his knowledge and grasp and understanding of the Bible. Always remember, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. He begins to glory in his spirituality. He begins to look down upon people who are not as mature and discerning as he is. Hey, how many hours, how many hours a day do you pray? I pray one hour, man, I pray three. I've heard people talk that way. I really have. Now, I know we can't be near to God. I know we can't grow with God unless we're with him. I get all that, all the the spiritual disciplines and the, the devotions of our life. But my goodness, we begin to compare our church with another church. Man, we have church. They don't have church. We have church. They don't understand what church is until they come to my church. They don't understand preaching until they come to our preaching. It's rampant in the church world. It's rampant in Christians' lives. And we criticize the body of Christ because we think we're so righteous and holy and we got it all figured out. My denomination, my theology, my doctrine. And we get on this this high horse. It's self-righteousness. It's a pharisaical spirit. If not for God's grace, you'd be in hell right now. God's grace is a free gift. It has nothing to do with you. Nothing. It's a meritless gift given to you because of his loving kindness and his desire to save. All in all, this self-righteous individual finds a great deal of comfort for themselves by comparing themselves to people who are less spiritual than they are. This person forgets that anything good in themselves comes only from Jesus. The only good thing in you is Jesus. It's not Stephen. It's not Kimberly. It's not Kenny. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. That's the only good thing. If you recall, Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And and he tells this parable. It says he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. If there is any condescension in the way that you view others, that's self-righteousness. If you look down upon anybody, sinner or Christian, you're despising others. You're putting yourself above others. And that will always blind you to your own sin. It will always blind you to your own shortcomings to your own immaturity and lack of spirituality where you think you're so spiritual. You're really not. Just like the Corinthian church. They lacked no gift, but they were messed up. But they thought they were so spiritual. Oh, they were so holy. They had all these gifts and all these things happening and the Holy Spirit was moving and they were carnal. They were carnal. But he tells this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector for those who trusted themselves and despised 
others, if there be any tinge of condescension in your life where you are condescending towards others, repent right now. That's an indication of self-righteousness. That's an indication of elevating yourself and looking down at others. You know those who are truly spiritual? Paul tells us in Galatians, you who are spiritual, restore one who is weak or who has sinned. If you're really spiritual, you're going to grab everybody around you and pull them in close. And you're going to encourage them and you're going to get under them and push them up. And you're going to be a bridge for them. You're going to be a doormat for them. You're going to be everything you can to be to them. You're not going to compare yourself to them. You're going to be Jesus to them. Jesus laid his life down for you and I. There's too much competition in the body of Christ. There's too much competition in the pulpit. There's too much competition in the church. And I'm sick and tired of it. Quit comparing yourselves to others. That self-righteousness And that keeps you from seeing who you are. Because when you come into the presence of God, instead of allowing allowing yourself to see yourself, your constant point of reference is not Jesus, it's something else. And so, you can't fully agree with God concerning yourself. Are you unsaved? No. You're just not as spiritual as you thought you were. You're just not. And then there is the more subtle self-righteousness unbelievers can fall prey to. And you can even do this self-consciously, unconsciously. When he fails to realize that he is only righteous by faith and not by his works. Dave Wilkerson writes once more in devotion, righteousness by faith. A lot of Christians today are worn down from their efforts toward, to ward off sin. They pour all their energies into it until they are drained of every last ounce of joy. The victory, the victory Christ has won for them gets lost in their dogged efforts to establish a righteousness of their own. Righteousness that is pursued by anything other than faith will always fail. You see, there cannot be God's righteousness and our righteousness. That would mean there are two gospels, his and ours. We cannot mix our self-righteousness with God's holy righteousness. <coughs> Maybe you wonder, but aren't we supposed to put forth some effort? Doesn't the Bible say we're to avoid sin? The only way to avoid sin is through Jesus. He is not just a truth you accept. He is the living God and your sanctifier. His sanctifying work in you never stops day or night. Friend, are you worn down from trying to do better in your own strength? Are you weary of the endless cycles of recommitment and failure? Put it all behind you. Let all your striving cease. Your right standing with the Lord does not depend on your will, but on God who has mercy. Trust in him alone for your victory. There are many people who are struggling because they're trying to work in their own strength, their own righteousness. And Christ is saying, come to me. All that you weary and are heavy laden, and you will find rest in me. Be yoked from me. Learn from me. Let me be your teacher. Let me lead and direct you and guide you. Don't do it yourself. Don't do it in your own strength and your own power. That's a more subtle self-righteousness, but it is self-righteousness. And it is an impediment 
from us fully seeing ourselves and agreeing with God concerning ourselves. Another barrier to forgiveness is this, condemnation. Condemnation. I'm going to hurry up here. Listen close. Listen to this, please. Listen. The Lord gave me this. If the devil can't cause you to make much of your righteousness, he'll cause you to make little of Christ's righteousness. If the devil cannot cause you to make much of your own righteousness, he will cause you to make little of Jesus' righteousness. That is, he will diminish the efficacy of Jesus' blood. He will diminish the efficacy of the righteous act of the cross of Calvary. If He can't cause you to overlook your sin by self-righteousness, He'll cause you to be so overwhelmed by your own sin to the point of hopelessness and defeat to the point that you do not run to Jesus Christ because you think He's inadequate. So much condemnation heaped upon a person. It paralyzes them with hopelessness and defeat and a feeling that I will never be free. But we read last week in John chapter 3, we read John 3.16. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What does 17 say? For, for, uh, he, for the son did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn us because we were already condemned in our sinful state. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. You were already condemned in your trespasses and sins before you came to Christ. But there are many people who are in Christ when they find themselves in sin that they are heaped with condemnation. And you know why they are? Because the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And he wants to, he wants to distract you from the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelations 12.10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Look here at 1 John. The devil is continuously accusing Accusing us before the throne of God. The devil preaches the gospel in part. Listen, the devil preaches too. But only in part. Half-truths. He wants you to know that you're a terrible, wicked, evil person. That's what the gospel says. He wants you to know that you, there's no saving for yourself. But he wants you to be so... Defeated and hopeless and feel so accused that you, you accept your state of condemnation and you do not see the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. So look here at 1 John 5. I'm going to end right here. Here's why I'm ending. Why did he write these things? So that we might have fellowship with God and that our joy may be full. <clears throat> this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We read in John chapter 3, and this is the condemnation. 
that people love darkness more than light because their deeds were evil. The unbeliever loves darkness more than light and they live in darkness. But when you became saved, you were translated into the kingdom of his son. You're translated into the kingdom of light. You're translated into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That is, we're disagreeing with what God says concerning ourselves. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Every single one of us, our call is to walk hand in hand with Jesus, to walk in the light. I don't care what you've done, how you feel, run straight out into the light in the presence of God with a broken and contrite heart. He will not despise you. He will not push you away. The safest place to be is in your nakedness in the light in the presence of God. That's the safest place to be. No matter your shame and your guilt and the amount of condemnation you feel from the devil, the safest place to be is in the light. The most vulnerable place. The place where you're going to be seen and known for who you are. God already knows. But if you will, in brokenness and contrition, I don't care what the sin is, big or small, whatever it is, whatever you see in yourself, as we walk in the light hand in hand, Fellowship with Jesus with the intent, not that you would feel discouraged or despised, but that your joy may be full. As you walk in the light, he continues to put his finger on things and expose the darkness in your heart and expose the affections for the world. And he does it tenderly and gently by the power of the Holy Spirit who's there to convict you and guide you and lead you and teach you. And as you walk hand in hand with him, he continuously cleanses you from sin. You were initially cleansed and saved on the day of conversion, the day of salvation. But you're being continuously cleansed as you continue to walk in the light. Walk in the light. Fellowship with Jesus. Walking with Him hand in hand. Turning your back on darkness. Turning your back on the world. Turning your back on sin. And running to Jesus. Living in the light. I had to put some roach traps out in my garage because I never see roaches during the day. But if I go into my garage... They're not in my house, but when I go into my garage and I flip the light on, there they are. And what do they do? When there's light on, they scurry to a dark corner. And good luck finding them. Turn the lights off, they'll show right back up. We're to be creatures of the light. We're to live in fellowship with Jesus. Not just to endure him, but to enjoy him. But if we walk in the light, verse 7, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. And if you don't understand that, if you don't, if you don't agree with what God says concerning his own nature, you'll be steeped in condemnation, you'll be steeped in shame, you'll be steeped in guilt, and you will not receive the free forgiveness he wants to give to you. But you come in brokenness and contrition, all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. As I said earlier, to confess is simply to agree with God concerning your sin. And if we confess, that is, if you come to the end of your own righteousness, if, if, if you will allow the convictive work of the Holy Spirit to overshadow the condemnation and the accusations of the devil, and you will confess your sin out in the open, in the light, he is always faithful, he is always just to forgive. That's the God you serve. That's the God that you serve. This is a privilege of the child of God. This does not apply to the sinner. It only applies once they come to him in faith. But you live in this place of light as a child of God where there's continual cleansing. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all our righteousness. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Steve, come help me, please. My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. He makes no admittance for sin. He makes no justification for sin. He does not say you must sin because we have power over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he understands that we're not perfected yet. And so that if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And what did I say the devil will try to do? If he can't cause you to make much of your righteousness, he'll cause you to make little of Christ's righteousness. But when you realize there's only one righteous, that is Jesus. And that one righteous one has died for me. And his blood cleanses me and continues to cleanse me over and over again and washes over me and cleanses me. I know I can go to that advocate. That advocate there is the same word for comforter and helper in John chapter 16, parakletos. One who comes beside you and will speak for you as a, as a lawyer or one who, who meets with you in court and speaks on your behalf. The blood of Jesus will speak on your behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That word propitiation, it means appeasement or satisfaction. God is satisfied with you because He's satisfied with His Son. He's satisfied with the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died upon the cross just before He gave up His Spirit, the last thing He said is, it is finished. And that's, account, that's an accounting term that means paid in full. God's wrath is appeased. The penalty has been paid. And I can, walking in life, walking in fellowship with Him, reap the continual benefits of being forgiven by God and being cleansed in His blood. Would you stand up with me?